Well, Bruce, uh, you honor me by asking me. So I, I was honored to be asked, and thank you for that. And uh, so what you're saying is, if this book is heresy, I'm a heretic because <laughs> you got it from me. Okay, well, I've been called that before. But I'm honored to be associated with the book, and I just pray that God will use it. This book will, here's the genius of this book. It shows that we're free from the law, but it motivates you to living a life that brings honor and glory to God. Now you see, that's the sort of thing that defies logic. People hastily assume that if you're preaching that we're not under law, they immediately think, oh, well, then you can live as you please. Now, the, the irony is, once you understand justification by faith, if you don't ask the question, well, then why live a holy life? It's because you haven't understood it. Because that's the most natural question. Dr. Lloyd-Jones, the man who mentored me, always said that if the gospel we preach doesn't give the charge or bring about the charge of antinomianism, that's a big word, uh, he will define it more in the book, it means without law. In other words, if the gospel we preach doesn't cause people to think antinomian, you haven't preached the gospel. Because they're going to think that as soon as they find out we're free from the law. But then if you think that is the answer, you haven't understood it. And that's where this book uh, will motivate you to holy living without the legalism and the bondage. Uh, that the law brings. So, well done. Do I get a copy? <laughs> Can I have this one? Okay. How come you haven't given me a copy? Isn't it worth something? <laughs> but if I get it real now, it's real cheap. How much do you want? <laughs> Here, give it to me later and sign it. <laughs> All right. Well, I love coming here. I like it so much I can't tell whether it's spiritual or not. I just like coming here. <laughs> the more I think about the influence that Colin Dye has had on us, you may or may not know this story. Uh, I'll just tell it to you. It would have been in 1994... It was uh, late November, and uh, Colin and Lyndon and I, Lyndon Bowring, you probably know who that is, uh, were having breakfast here in London. And Colin said, would you like to meet Rodney Howard Brown? I said, yeah. He said, well, he'll have breakfast with you Thursday. It was just like that. I couldn't have known what that would lead to. The bottom line is, that uh, Louise had a condition, um, uh, two conditions. I won't go into the details. It's in two or three of my books. I just want you to know she was very, very ill, very ill, and been to hospitals and doctors. And I just said, Rodney, I want you to pray for Louise. And I want you to know that he and Adonica prayed for her. And this was on a day when she hadn't slept the night before because of his cough. That was a part of the problem. And she came to the chapel uh, for, because Rodney said he would come to the chapel 
uh, just to pray for Louise. And she had hardly slept. She came in. There was no hype. There was no preconditioning. Let's note an hour of worship first. She just sat in the chair. They came over and just laid hands on her. She was instantly healed. And that was 19... How many... 1994, 6 and 12, about 18 years ago. It's amazing it's been that long ago. And uh, so uh, people have criticized me for endorsing Rodney. And I just say, well, go talk to Louise. She's exhibit A <laughs> for his ministry. Well, by the way, I believe, where's uh, Colin, did the rapture come? Oh, he's, he's watching elsewhere. But I think he did announce I'm coming back on August 12th. And this is the only time, I promise you, that I've asked to preach here. Uh, well, I said there are probably other times because I have a kind of a deal. You know, the queen... Uh, requires that every time Billy Graham comes to London, he has to notify Buckingham Palace. Uh, I haven't reached that status yet, <laughs> but I do have to notify Colin Dye. And, uh, and he almost always kindly invites me to preach. But this time I asked to preach because my publisher wanted me to come over in August and uh, so on the evening of August 12th at the 5 o'clock and the 7 o'clock service I'll be introducing my next book which is called Totally Forgiving God it's the third of a trilogy total forgiveness totally forgiving ourselves and the third totally forgiving God now that's a dangerous title and I didn't want to use it at first because I could just see how everybody was going to start in on me for such a title. But here's, but you read about three pages and you won't think that. I just want you to know God is perfect and pure and just, sinless, without guilt, totally holy. But He does allow things that we don't understand. And we kept we're left wondering, Lord, how could you let this happen to me? And I've dealt with that in this book. How we should set God free and not blame Him. And if necessary, forgive Him for what He has allowed to happen. And this book uh, could be. It's easy for a, a, an author to think his latest book is the best and the best, most important. And it's a natural thing for many writers but even my publishers are believing this is probably my most important book it will help people with the problem why did God allow this and, uh, and if anything it will make you love God all the more that's, that's the purpose of it so that's August 12th okay would you open your Bibles please to 1 Samuel chapter 16 1 Samuel Samuel 16. I'm first going to read verse 13, and then I'm going to turn to another passage in 2 Samuel. And the pa passage in 2 Samuel is 2 Samuel 23, verse 13. First, 
1 Samuel 16, verse 13. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, that's David, in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Now, if you're able quickly to turn to 2 Samuel, chapter 23, and starting at verse 13. 2 Samuel 23, 13. During harvest time, three of the 30 chief men came down to David at the cave of Adullam, while a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Raphaim. At that time, David was in the stronghold, and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. David longed for water and said, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. So the three mighty men broke through the Philistine lines drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem and carried it back to David. But he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. Far be it from me, O Lord, to do this, he said. Is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? And David would not drink it. We'll return to that later. But may God be pleased to bless the reading and the preaching of this, his most holy and infallible word. Brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus by your Holy Spirit to be upon every mind present that their perception of what I say will be received and grasped as you intend and cleanse my tongue, that I'll be your transparent vehicle to say everything you want said, nothing you don't want said. And may this be a word that will be transforming, encouraging, life-changing, and may it bring great honor and glory to your name. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to deal with an aspect of the life of David, who I would call, in this case, an example of tomorrow's man or tomorrow's woman. Uh, I think on a previous occasion, I've dealt with the earlier part of 1 Samuel, where you have a description of yesterday's man, today's man, tomorrow's man. In verse 1, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul, yesterday's man, since I've rejected him as king over Israel? And then he speaks to Samuel, a type of today's man. Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons, David, example of tomorrow's man, to be king. Now, I'm not going to go over the territory of 1 Samuel 16, uh, only to say that in verse 13, Samuel now, having selected David, 
a person nobody thought would be the next king. But Samuel followed the anointing of the Spirit and anointed David, overlooked by his own father. In fact, Jesse, David's father, wasn't even going to uh, bring uh, David in to meet Samuel. He was out with the sheep. And uh, I think it's an amazing thing that here is Jesse. He's got these sons. And uh, hoping one of them be anointed king, hoping it would be his firstborn. And David, who is the runt of the litter and the least expected. And, and Jesse isn't even going to bring David in. Uh, and I think it's, it's, it's so sad. I wonder if there's anyone here like this where parental approval has meant so much to you, but you didn't get it. You wanted your dad's approval. And uh, this is, is the way it was with, with David. Jesse wasn't even going to tell him that Samuel was coming. And uh, yet the wonderful thing is God knew who the next person would be. And it could be that I'm talking with someone here. You have been overlooked by your own parent. They underestimated you. And, uh, but God knew where you were. And he wanted you. And as he found David, he will find you. Now, here's the thing. Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed David in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Now, you might have thought that the anointing of oil and the Spirit of God coming on David like that meant that David was ready to be king. You might assume that because it sure sounds like it. He's anointed. He's to be the next king. Spirit of God comes on him. But do you know it would be another 20 years before he would be king? Another 20 years. Now we might wish that Samuel had said to David, as soon as the Spirit of God came upon him, if only he would have said, now, oh, by the way, David, almost forgot to tell you, you will not wear the crown for another 20 years. Oh, one more thing I should have told you, David. Um, you're going to spend the next 20 years running from King Saul just to stay alive. But God didn't say that. Not at all. He just anointed him, and that was it. Now, you may think, surely with the anointing like that, he's ready to be king. And I wonder if there's someone here like that. You have the anointing, and you may feel that you're ready for what you've been earmarked to do. But perhaps you're not ready after all. The truth is, Everyone's anointing needs to be refined. And the truth is, David wasn't ready to be king. We're talking about a teenager. Wasn't 20 years old yet. Not that God can't use teenagers, but the point is, he certainly wasn't ready to be king. God could have waited another 20 years and then anointed him. But God instead gave him the anointing now, but he had to wait for his time to come. Could it be that you, here tonight, you're tomorrow's man. You're tomorrow's woman. 
You're waiting for your time to come. I'm not saying it's going to be another 20 years. But what if it were? What if it were? The great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, if I knew I had 25 years left to live, I'd spend 20 of it in preparation. You see, most of us think, well, just because we've got the Holy Spirit, we can just tackle the world. You're ready to do anything. But the truth is, we each, each of us, we need to be refined. Uh, it takes me back to when I was pastor of a church in Tennessee. I was a student at Trevecca Nazarene College in Nashville. It's now Trevecca Nazarene University. I was a student there, but also pastor of a little church 115 miles away. And uh, my grandmother bought a brand new car for us, uh, for me, <laughs> us. We weren't married yet. Uh, and uh, I was so proud of that car. And uh, not many my age had a car in those days. And, but I did need one in order to go to the church on weekends. And uh, after I'd been there uh, about a year or so, one morning driving in my car from Palmer to Nashville, Tennessee, the glory of the Lord filled the car. The person of Jesus was more real to me than any of you are right now. That real. More real than any of you. Changed my life, changed my thinking, changed my theology, changed my church direction. And uh, sometime later I come back home to Ashland, Kentucky. I'm from Kentucky. And uh, by the way, I don't want you to feel intimidated uh, by me. Because I'm from Kentucky? I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think I'm better than you. I, I probably am, but I don't feel it. Uh, so I don't want you to... I keep, I keep in mind that these people can't help it, that they weren't born in Kentucky. So I, I'm patient with you. Uh, of course, my wife Louise is from northern Illinois. She's a snob. She thinks she's a cut above Kentuckians. Anyway, good man, could have been from Ireland. <laughs> They're not listening. They're just talking to each other. <laughs> I go back to Kentucky, and I tell my dad what's happened to me. And I think he's just going to say, wonderful, I'm so proud of you. But when he realized I wasn't going to be in my old denomination much longer... First of all, my grandmother took the car back. <laughs> and secondly, my dad said to me, and he, he meant it, and he, he meant no harm. He said, son, you've broken with God. You've broken with God. I said, dad, I'm closer to God than ever. You've broken with God. I said, God's going to use me. He says, prove to me that you haven't broken with God. Well, I couldn't come up with anything. And uh, in those days, I had visions I did for about six months. There were six, oh, I think 10 or 12 visions. And uh, at least one of them, maybe two, indicated that one day I'd have a ministry that would literally go around the world. And, uh, uh, you know, I always thought I'd be just preaching in Kentucky or Tennessee the rest of my life. And I wasn't prepared for that. So I thought I would impress my father. I said, uh, you, you ought to know 
that I am going to have an international ministry. He said, when? <laughs> One year from now. That was in 1956. He said, will you put that in writing? Yep. He goes out, he gets a sheet of paper, brings it up, writes out, I.R.T. Kendall will, from the date below, have an international ministry in one year. Sign it. I did. Easiest thing I ever did. I really thought it would happen in three months. If you ever had a vision, you know it's so real, you think you're going to have it day after tomorrow. But I was conservative. One year. One year later, I wasn't even in the ministry. <laughs> and now Dad knew I had broken with God. Five years later, I wasn't even in the ministry, and I was selling vacuum cleaners door to door. <laughs> Did you know that the former minister of Westminster Chapel was the best vacuum cleaner salesman in South Florida? <laughs> While all my fellow students at Trevecca were out pastoring churches, here was R.T. going up to strange doors. <laughs> Hello, I'm R.T. Kendall. I've come to show you something new and different for your home. so humbling. And people go up to my dad and they'd say, Mr. Kendall, how's your son R.T. doing? Uh, well, he's working as a daughter. <laughs> uh, Mr. Kendall, your son R.T., you know, is such a brilliant uh, future. Uh, what, what's he doing? I, he's working as a daughter. <laughs> I didn't hear you, Mr. Kendall. What's R.T. doing? He's working as a door-to-door -door vacuum cleaner salesman. <laughs> Killed my dad to say that. Killed me to know how brokenhearted he was. But I'll never forget it as long as I live. In 1978, 22 years later, on a train from Edinburgh to King's Cross as we were coming into London Station, Dad looked across at me and said, Son, I'm proud of you. You were right. I was wrong. But it took 22 years. And perhaps you're waiting for approval of someone, an authority figure. But I wasn't ready in 1956 for what God had called me to do. I couldn't have been an international ministry. I mean, for one thing, if I came over here and preached for you, you wouldn't have me back. I mean, I, I didn't know anything in those days. But I had the Holy Spirit. And I knew God was with me. So just because you have an anointing, don't take it to mean that you're ready for whatever you're, you're earmarked to do. It will take time. It might take months. It might take years. Well, now, the, what I want to deal with is what was it David needed to learn? Why wasn't he ready? Well, I can give a few things. I probably could spend hours giving other things, but let me mention three or four things. The first is, David needed to learn the meaning of the word mercy. Mercy. What is that? Well, grace is when God gives you what you don't deserve. Mercy is when God doesn't give you what you do deserve. Instead of judging you, He has mercy on you. Instead of letting you get caught, He has mercy on you. 
And for the next 20 years, David will be running from King Saul just to stay alive. And time and time again, David would be spared. We're told David behaved himself wisely in all his ways. And he was learning a lot. And not the least of which was to appreciate the mercy of God. Do you know what mercy is? It's, it's just when God has just been good to you and, he, and you don't deserve it. But you need to know that God said to Moses, are you listening? I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. That means you are going to have to go to God on bended knee and say, Lord, have mercy on me. I wonder if there's anybody here tonight you think because you've become a Christian that God is just saluting you and say, oh, am I lucky ever to have you. Or when you come to church, you think, God, are you proud of me today? You think you've done something special? The average person thinks they're doing God some kind of a favor. If they come to church, if they walk forward in a Billy Graham campaign or come forward, they just, God is going to say, oh, lucky me. Look who's going to be saved tonight. Listen, it's by the very mercy of God that you even have the desire to come forward. The very fact that you can even call on his name. Because I need to tell you right now, the way to be saved is not because you come to God and say, Lord, you know how good I am. I've done this for you. I've done this. I've done this. And I want you to know God will just not even listen to you. He won't even listen to you. But if you come to him and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I don't deserve mercy. Would you just save me? Thank you that I'm still alive. Thank you that I wasn't killed when I almost had an accident. Thank you that I didn't die. Thank you that I'm still alive. I'm alive. And you've had mercy on me up to now. Please have mercy on me. That's the way you come to God. Don't you ever think you can snap your finger and expect God to feel lucky that you would even give him attention. I want you to know the very fact that you have a desire to come to him. Thank God for that. And you honor that because you may not always have that. The Bible says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. And so you come and ask him for mercy. When's the last time you ever asked for mercy? I'll tell you something you may not know. Did you know that Hebrews 4.16, written to Christians, shows that when you pray, the first thing you ask for is mercy. Let us come boldly, let us come with confidence under the throne of grace that we might receive mercy. You say, well, surely a Christian doesn't have to do that. Oh, yes, he does. Yes, she does. You never outgrow the need of mercy. The leper, when he saw Jesus at a distance, he knew his place. He kept away from the crowds. But when he could get to Jesus and no one was looking, he went up to Jesus. You know what he said? He said, Lord, if you will, you can clean me up. You can cleanse me, if you will. The leper knew that Jesus could do it, but he also knew that Jesus could withhold doing it. 
And either way, Jesus would be right. So the leper doesn't go up to Jesus and say, you've got to heal me. A lot of people feel that. Lord, I've done all this for you. You've got to do this. And God looks down and says, really? <laughs> you go to God and you ask for mercy. And you know you have nothing to give in exchange. Some years ago, Louise and I were driving in Miami Beach, Florida. Uh, it's on Collins Avenue, by the way. C-O-L-L-I-N. So Colin died, didn't own it, but it's called Collins Avenue. And the most famous hotel is called the Fontainebleau. And there are dozens of hotels, but it's the main one. And we used to drive into Miami and, and look at the elegant hotels. One evening, driving 35 miles per hour, coming to a traffic light, it was green, and turned yellow. Before I knew it, it turned red, and I kept on going. I looked in my mirror. I don't know where that policeman, hey, providential. <laughs> See, there's a sign you should be listening to me. <laughs> Except uh, it wasn't a siren, it was just a blue light going on and off, on and off. And I thought, oh dear. So I pulled over, went back to the policeman, and I was hoping to, to play this little act, why did you stop me? What did I do wrong? <laughs> But he was looking just like this. I knew he knew that I knew what I did. <laughs> so there's no use playing that game. I just look, officer, you got me. Please don't give me a ticket. He said, why? I said, I'd appreciate it. <laughs> he said, you know, Mr. Kendall, you went right through that red light. You went right through that red light. And you're asking me not to give you a ticket. He says, give me one reason why I shouldn't give you a ticket. Well, we'll say this. Where we live, I think the light stays yellow just a little longer. And, and, and we, uh, you know, got the red light came so quick and we were going 35 miles per hour. He said, the speed limit is 25. <laughs> Now could he could arrest me for something he hadn't even stopped me for. I said, please don't give me a ticket. He said, tell me one reason. I said, I don't have a reason. I'm just asking for mercy. He let me go. Never will forget it. He let me go. But you know what? I felt so helpless. And you need to know, if you don't come to God in that state, you won't be saved. And if you think you've God, done God a favor by being here, you're still not saved until you come to Him and you say, be merciful to me, a sinner. You haven't been converted yet. But you'll get an opportunity tonight. Say, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I thought my work saved me. I thought I've done this and that. I see. I just need your mercy. Who would have thought that one day David would need that word more than anything in the world because years later he became king saw Bathsheba beautiful woman washing herself lust took over he said I've got to have her he slept with her and then to cover it up had her husband killed and he was in awful shape 
Nathan the prophet exposed his sin. And then after that, David wrote the 51st Psalm. And what are the opening words? Have mercy on me, O God. You never know when you're going to need to ask God for mercy. But David knew he had been a rascal. He'd been horrible. He could just say, have mercy. He needed to learn that over the next 20 years. That's why he wasn't ready to be king. Another thing David needed to learn was gratitude. To be thankful. Being thankful. Just saying to the Lord, thank you. How often do you give thanks to the Lord? And over the next 20 years, David would learn the meaning of gratitude. The meaning of remembering to thank the Lord. And so you have it in the Psalms. The mercy, goodness and mercy will follow me. You've got it in the Psalms. Be thankful to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord and praise his name. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving. You see, David would need to learn the meaning of gratitude. Something happened to me in 1986. I think, I don't remember the actual date. I've got it in my diary. But we were going through Philippians at Westminster Chapel. And we came to Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. And this doesn't happen to me every day. I wish it did, but it did happen then. As I was preaching on this verse, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And as I was preaching, the Holy Spirit convicted me of my lack of gratitude. When I saw this word, with thanksgiving, it was as though my whole life came up before me. And I felt so horrible. I said, Lord, let me get through this sermon quick as possible. I get back into the vestry. I'll fall on my knees and I'll resolve to be a thankful man from this day. And I want you to know, when I got into that vestry and I stopped them from bringing in the tea they usually would do right after the service, I needed time. I said, God, I'm so sorry. He began to show me one thing after another, one thing after another that he had done for me. And he said, R.T., are you thankful? I said, well, of course I am. You know I am. He said, you never told me. You never told me. Uh, I resolved that day. It's a vow that I have kept. That I would be a thankful man. And the way I've done it, I keep a journal. I've kept a journal for years and years and years and years. I could tell you where I was on... Today's April 5th. I can tell you where I was April 5th in 1987 at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I just do that. Do you know what I do now? I go through yesterday's journal and thank the Lord for every little thing. In other words, today I look at the things that happened to me yesterday. And some interesting things happened yesterday, lovely things. And I thank the Lord for that. I won't go into the detail. This is none of your business. But <laughs> there were things personal. And I, I just said, thank you. Thank you. You know how long it takes? 20 seconds. That's all. 
And, I, and, and, and tomorrow, I will go through the journal of the things today. I will thank him for things that have happened today. Unusual things, by the way, that have happened today. And I will thank him. I would urge you to make it a habit to think of at least three things every day before you go to sleep. Thank him. And you got, go through the day, and you're just thanking for every little thing. You'll find there's more than three. And God likes that. And do you know what has been shown physiologically? This may surprise you. You ready for this? Thankful people live longer. Yeah. Thankful people live longer. And David learned the meaning of gratitude. You see, we're made in the image of God. And you need to know, God loves gratitude. He hates ingratitude. When Jesus healed the ten lepers, one came back and said, thank you. And the first thing Jesus said was, where are the nine? You see, God knows what he's done for you. Nine were healed, didn't bother to come back and say thank you. One did. One did. And I wonder if that's just about the normal, that 10% of people that God has blessed are thankful. But you be sure that you tell him and say thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And you know what? It'll change your lifestyle. Change everything. And it pleases the Lord. Show him. Tell him. Thank you. All right. David needed to learn the word mercy. He needed to learn thanks. There's a third thing David needed to learn. And that is to develop a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. Now, here's what happened. One day, David's followers said, guess what? This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said, I will give your enemy into your hands. Because King Saul was found in a particular place, in a place called En Gedi uh, in Israel. I've been there a number of times to the very area where King Saul was, and David found out where King Saul was in En Gedi, and they said, you know, right now, you can kill him, and you're king. That passed. Well, no, we won't do that, says David, but let's have a little fun. Let's have some fun. David crept up unnoticed while King Saul was asleep and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. You may say, well, what's wrong with that? I think that's great. Do you know what? In moments, David was conscience-stricken. Conscience-stricken for cutting off a corner of Saul's robe. You say, well, what's so bad about that? He could have killed him. He not only didn't kill him, King, uh, King Saul lived, but David now felt horrible that he would even do this. Most people could do that and never bother them. But if you're tomorrow's man, tomorrow's woman, you need to learn to develop the voice, to hear the voice of God, and he'll convict you of things that maybe other people aren't convicted of. And you say, how come so-and-so gets away with this, but I don't? Well, it's kind of like when Jesus told Peter how he was going to die, end of John 21, 
all Peter could think about. What's going to happen to John? What's going to happen to John? Jesus said, shut up. What if I let him live forever? You follow me. And you see, God may have his hand on you. Others can do this, or they get away with that, or whatever. But you don't. Because God wants you to listen to him. And you develop a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. I've written a book called Sensitivity of the Holy Spirit. And uh, it's a book, I think it's out of print. I think it's one of my very best books, and it's out of print. I've tried to get the publisher to put it back in print. Maybe they will. But the point of the book is that the Holy Spirit is a very, very sensitive person. He can be grieved. In fact, Ephesians 4.30 says, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed under the day of redemption. The word grieve comes from a Greek word that means get your feelings hurt. So the Holy Spirit gets his feelings hurt easily. He's very sensitive. Now, when we speak of a person being overly sensitive, it's not a compliment. But like it or not, that is the way the Holy Spirit is. He gets his feelings hurt so easily. You say, well, he ought not be like that. I'm sorry, but that's the way he is. So get over it. He's the only God you've got. And he's sensitive. And you see, it happens this way. When we grieve the Holy Spirit, the anointing on us lifts. The analogy is, the reason that John the Baptist knew that Jesus was the Messiah. He said, I saw the dove come down on Jesus and remain on him. Stayed there. The dove just came down on Jesus and stayed there. Now, speaking personally, I don't know about you, but I know what it is for the Holy Spirit to come down, but it doesn't stay. The dove flies away. When it comes down, you think, oh, Lord, please stay. Please don't leave. Just stay. But life goes on. That afternoon, you think, what happened? Boy, he was so near to me. Maybe it happened when you spoke curtly to your wife or your roommate or best friend or somebody in the office. You lose your temper, and you say, how could they do this? And the dove just flies away. But you see, Jesus never grieved the Holy Spirit. The dove just came down on Jesus and said, oh, I like it here. I'm at home here. He remained there. And I want the dove to come down on me and remain. There's a story. I've told it here at KT, but it will bear repeating because some of you weren't here. A British couple were sent by their denomination to Israel to be missionaries. And they were given a home in which to live near Jerusalem. And they found out a few months after they lived in their house that a dove had come to live in the eve of the roof of their house. And they were so thrilled. It was like a seal of God on their being in Israel. But they noticed that every time they would slam a door, the dove would fly away. Every time they would get into an argument, shout at each other, the dove would fly away. 
One day, Sandy said to Bernice, have you noticed the dove? She said, yes. How do you feel about the dove? Oh, it's like a seal of God in our bigot Israel. But have you noticed every time we get into an argument with each other and start shouting, the dove flies away. We slam a door, the dove flies away. She said, yes, I'm so afraid the dove will fly away and not come back. He looked at her and said, either the dove adjusts to us or we adjust to the dove. It changed their lives just to keep the dove, an animal, in the eve of the roof of their house. But the Holy Spirit is ten times, hundred times, thousand times more sensitive than that. And so when I speak curtly to you, or I'm angry, it could be with my wife, or it could be in a supermarket, or the person in front of me, they're so slow, counting their changes, they go through the cashier, and you go, oh, oh, and you wanted them to hear you. They did. But so did the dove. He just flew away. And I want you to know, the dove, the Holy Spirit, won't bend the rules for any of us. You need to learn this. Tomorrow's man, tomorrow's woman, to become so sensitive to what grieves the Holy Spirit. And this is the way God was training David. Dr. Lloyd-Jones used to say to me that the worst thing that can happen to a man is to succeed before he's ready. And God's going to make sure that David didn't succeed before he was ready. And if you have been earmarked for something, and perhaps you feel that in the past God witnessed to you. Maybe you had a prophetic word, word of knowledge, but you just believe that one day God's going to use you. I told you, I knew one day I'd have an international ministry. Maybe God has given you something. Who knows? There may be in this room the next Billy Graham, future prime minister. Who knows? And maybe you say, well, Lord, I've been waiting and waiting and waiting. And you've cried out, how long, how long, how long? I can tell you, just develop a sensitivity to the Spirit's ways. Don't rush to try to succeed or to get that job or get that promotion. Just wait. They that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. Wait. Wait. And the day came when God looked down on David and said, David, I think you're ready. I think you're ready. And he became Israel's greatest king. You know, when I was at Westminster Chapel, I started my sermon preparation for Sunday morning on Monday morning. That's what I did at Westminster Chapel. Monday morning, I'd start the Sunday morning sermon preparation. But there was one time in the whole 25 years I was in London, only happened once, that I didn't get a chance to do it. I was out all over Britain preaching, and it was now Saturday morning. I had nothing for Sunday. Nothing. I said, Lord, please, make up for the week. You know how it's been. Just compensate, please. And I've got the whole Saturday now. Let there be no interruptions. Please, and give me something for tomorrow. Well, at 9 o'clock that morning, Louise and I got into an argument. <laughs> In Kentucky, we would call it a dandy. She was horrible.
I slammed the door, went to my room, sat down, blank sheet of paper, and the Word of God. I said, Lord, give me something. Come on. Jesus, help me. Deal with, deal with that woman. Uh, 11 o'clock, nothing. Blank sheet of paper. Please, Lord, help me. 12 o'clock noon, nothing. Three hours, waiting there, blank sheet of paper. 1 o'clock. By 2 o'clock, I was in a state. I said, Lord, you know everything I say tomorrow is going to ta be tape recorded. It's going to go around the world, and you've got to help me. A voice faintly replied, Really? <laughs> 3 o'clock. Blank sheet of paper. Four o'clock. I had nothing. You see, I was waiting for her. Four o'clock. I remembered as though it were yesterday. Went into the kitchen. I can see her standing next to the refrigerator. She was tearful. I said, honey, I'm sorry. It was all my fault. Well, she said, it wasn't all your fault. It was partly my fault. I said, no, it was all my fault. And I am so sorry. We kissed. We hugged. I went back to the same chair, blank sheet of paper. I promise you, in 45 minutes, I had everything I needed for Sunday. Why? The dove came down. The dove came down. You can accomplish more in five minutes when the Spirit of God comes down than in five years when you're trying to work it up and try to make something happen. And David was learning that. And it may be that you're almost ready for what God's called you to do, but he has to keep postponing it because you're losing your temper right, left, and center, holding a grudge, can't forgive, and the dove just stays at bay. My last point, the reason I read from 2 Samuel about the time when David said, oh, that someone would give me a drink of water from the well of, near the gate of Bethlehem is because this was the last and most important lesson that David had to learn. I preached through the life of David at Westminster Chapel, it took a year in the life of David. But I remember how I came to this after the series was over and I barely touched on it because I couldn't understand why isn't this account in 2 Samuel 23 in the chronology of the life of David? It's as though it's all over and now you're wrapping up the, the, the summary of David's life and he throws in that story. And then it hit me. It's put here because it was David's most important lesson. Here's what happened. He was at the cave of Adullam with his followers and they were very close to Bethlehem. This is where David was from. He was from Bethlehem. Bethlehem was home uh, but it was just you know a mile or two away and he so wanted to be inside Bethlehem 
so he could have a drink of water from the well near that gate. And he made his mistake when he said it out loud. If only he had said, Lord, somehow let me have a taste of that water of that well. But instead, he said, oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. He should have known that his followers would do anything to move heaven and earth for him. He should have known that they're going to try to do it. They did. They did. And I want you to know, they broke through the stronghold. They risked their lives. And they got that water. Perhaps it was in a bucket. I don't know. But they were so pleased with themselves. And they said to each other, can't wait to see the look on David's face when we bring him that water. And then they bring it. And the thanks they got is that David took that water. And here he is. You can imagine holding a glass of water. And they risked their lives because they loved him so much. Here's that water. Will they drink it? Or will they pour it out? Well, why would he pour it out? Because he knew that he should never have said what he did in allowing those men to do this. He knew that what he set them up to do, God was not in it. He now had to make the hardest decision of his life whether to please God by not drinking the water or please them who had gone to such effort to please him. You know, this is one of the hardest decisions you'll ever have to make. When those who love you most do something for you and you want to thank them and hug them and please them and show them you're grateful, but you know that God wants your love more. And are you willing to love God more than your most loyal friends? And every church leader needs to learn this, to love God more than your loyal supporters. And now this is hard. David knew what they had done. David knew that they couldn't wait to see the look on his face. Now they are seeing the look on his face. And instead of being excited and thrilled, he says, oh dear, do I please them and drink this water? Or do I please God by pouring it out? He holds it. He looks at them. He looks up. He looks at them. He looks up. He pours it out. He disappoints his loyal followers. But the angel said, yes. Because God is a jealous God. He wants you to love him more than anybody else. That was David's chief lesson. And so when it comes to your coming to God, you need to know he's a jealous God. He's the God who said, I can give mercy or I can withhold it. 
And you need to come to Him on bended knee. And the way you come to Him is to repeat this prayer in your heart. Don't say it out loud. But if you need this, because up to now you've been thinking you're special, you've tried to please God by living a good life, you thought that was going to earn you points, you thought because you've done this for Him, He's going to let you in. You've been baptized. You were brought up in a Christian home. You've been a nice person. And you thought that was going to do it for you. And you find out, not only do your works not help, they can actually hurt you. Do you know how works, good works, you know how good works can hurt you? You want me to tell you how? When you think they help. When you think they help, they hurt. But when you re realize that you've got nothing except to say, God, have mercy on me. So if you'll just in your heart, not out loud, say this prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, I need you. I want you. I'm sorry for my sins. Wash my sins away by your blood. I welcome your Holy Spirit into my heart. As best as I know how, I give you my life. Did anybody pray that prayer here? If you prayed that prayer, are you ashamed of it? You say, why do you ask, R.T.? Because Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father. I'm not going to ask you to make a speech. not going to ask you to join this church. But if you're not ashamed that you prayed that prayer, I'm going to ask you in the next 15 seconds just to stand up right where you are. You say, in front of all these people? Yes. To show you're unashamed. If you prayed that prayer, five, four, three, two, one. Stand to your feet if you just prayed that prayer. Stand to your feet. In the gallery, in the balcony. If you just prayed that prayer, stand to your feet. Stay standing. Stay standing. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Anyone else? You're asking God for mercy. You that are standing, to prove you mean it, go to the nearest aisle. If friends have come with you, they'll wait for you. In the gallery, it's going to take you an extra minute to get downstairs. Go to the nearest aisle. Find the stair. Wait, come down. You that are standing up, go right. Come down to the front. Come quickly. Go to the nearest aisle. Come right down here. And we will tell you what to do from that moment. Come quickly. You that are in the balcony gallery, just go to the nearest exit. Come down the steps. We'll wait just a moment. You're coming to him tonight, not snapping your finger, saying, Lord, you've got to do this for me. But you're coming saying, Lord, have mercy on me. I don't deserve to be here. But thank you for dying on a cross. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for shedding your blood. I come to you asking for your mercy, asking for your mercy. Wait just a little moment because this morning it took about a minute before they got down to the uh, ground floor. Now here they come. They're coming from the balcony. Let's welcome them. Bruce? 
I'm finished. Take over. Thank you, Dr. Kendall.